Pastor Rob. Randy Creek, how are we? We're good. Hey, that worship was incredible. Ash and the team, can we give them a round of applause? They were incredible. Yes, uh, if you haven't met me before, my name's Matt. Uh, I have uh, a great wife, an 11-week-old son, and also the campus pastor up at Pippenmark Campus. Thank you so much uh, for our prayers. We are one church in two locations, and it's great to see the community uh, being reached for Jesus with carols coming up soon. Uh, in two locations, uh, and with our Chambers Flat Campus opening up soon. It's great to see everything that's happening in the life of Kings. Amen, which is great. Well, it's a privilege, privilege to be here. Uh, let's get into the Word. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to turn to First uh, Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 20. Uh, as many of you would know, uh, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to uh, his protege, to the person he's mentoring, whose name is Timothy. This is the first uh, letter he writes. He writes the second one later. In 1 Timothy, he writes really a, a letter of help to Timothy. Timothy's planning a church. Timothy's leading the way. Timothy is doing all the things that we've been talking about as a church of advancing and taking territory for the kingdom and really just fulfilling the call of God that's upon his life as a young man. And towards the very, very end of 1 Timothy, Paul almost has like one thing left to say. A bunch of dissension has been going on and, and Paul's been trying to encourage Timothy and he says, Timothy, before I finish this letter, I've got one last thing to say. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, he says, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. I wonder when you think of your own life, when, what you think of when you think of what are the things that God has entrusted me with. You might think of a career, you may think of family, you may think of different relationships in your life that God has entrusted with you, different things of greatness that God has placed upon your life. And just like he did to Timothy, Paul here is saying almost like a warning to say, Timothy, guard what God has entrusted to you. Guard it with your life. Guard it with all your strength and all your courage and all your faith. Guard what God has placed upon your life. I love it here because this is written from Paul. And there's many a time where Paul would have had to guard what things that God was trying to do in his life. We read in Acts through prison and through trial and through time and time again that Paul would have had to guard what God was wanting to do in his life. A number of years ago, uh, I was doing a primary school chapel here on this stage. And I was doing a sermon about Peter and how Peter was a fisherman and that God can use ordinary people just like Peter. So I thought, well, primary school students have the attention span of a goldfish, uh, so I needed an object lesson, as all your parents would know. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to go to my 7-Eleven and buy a $5 frozen mullet. So I went to 7-Eleven, brought the mullet, put it on the end of a fishing rod, and I did my 15-minute primary school sermon with a fishing rod in my hand with a mullet dangling in front of students' faces to keep their attention. After the sermon was done... I thought, I can't let this mullet go to waste. I'm at work. I can't go fishing as I would usually do with a frozen mullet. But I, I can't just let it go to waste. I had one of those fathers who lived by the catchphrase, it'll come in handy one day, which my mother loved in the garage and many other rooms of the house. So I thought I would take on that saying and apply it to my own life and think, how could this mullet come in handy? So I went, uh, I went, I took an unofficial lunch break, I guess. Uh, I decided not to go back to work for half an hour. And I was with our drummer, BJ. And we had this mullet. I also had some duct tape in my car. And there I saw before me our children's pastor, Zach's car. 
in front of me in the car park. No one was around. No eyes were on me. There was no one whispering, whispering in my ear what not to do or what would be the wise thing to do. So I thought, this could be interesting. It was November. It was heating up. So I thought we can have some fun here. So we got down our hands and knees, crawled under Zach's uh, Nissan SUV, and duct taped the mullet to his, S- to his CV joint just above his tyre in the middle of summer. We thought, he'll love it. It'll stay there for a day or two. He'll smell it. He'll think, who on earth would have done this? Matt is the only person I know that would have done something that dumb. A week goes past. I don't hear anything. It's been hot all week. I said, Zach, how's your car going? Car's great. Why do you ask? No reason. Another week goes past. Zach, uh, got to tell you something. BJ and I may have duct taped a frozen mullet to your CV joint, which he uh, replied in, uh, why would you do that? We went and looked, and I would have just assumed that the mullet had fallen off because it's been two weeks and nothing apparently smelt. We look under his car. I still see the mullet there, duct taped to his CV joint. Zach cannot, so Zach was like, oh, it must have fallen off. Mm. I, just, I, I left. I walked off because I didn't want to lie. Uh, so I left. Two more weeks go past. Zach takes his car to the mechanics for service. I get this phone call from Zach, which I've sort of been expecting for the last week. Matt, the mechanic just called me and said there was a frozen mullet taped to my car and they are charging me $100 to clean it off. I said, that is worth $100, every penny of it, every cent, that is worth it to the dime, because that is hilarious. So he's been driving around with a car that looks beautiful on the outside, looks beautiful on the inside, but underneath, there's something duct taped to it. And who knows that when you have greatness upon your life, that oftentimes the enemy will try and sneak in something to your life that will stop it and stop the car driving from how it should be. There's the greatness there. There's stuff there that looks great. And like all of us in our calling that is upon our life, as Paul says to Timothy, guard the greatness because there's always people and there's always situations that will try and attach themselves to you that will hinder rather than help you in the call of God upon your life. Today's sermon title is Guarding the Great. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I thank you, Lord, You've put greatness in each and every single one of us, and I would pray and help, ask that you would help us to guard it, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned before, that message of Timothy is written from Paul, and there's a few things here we can learn from Paul in how Paul guarded the greatness that was upon his life throughout his journey with the Lord. In Acts chapter 23, we're going to stay in Acts for the rest of uh, the message. Acts chapter 23 uh, it's towards the very end of Acts, Paul has already accomplished so much in the Lord. He's been to Ephesus, he's been to Philippi. Uh, Pastor Ben was mentioning about when, uh, when Paul and Silas were in prison, chained and shackled, and they had a breakthrough through their praises. Uh, that's been and gone, that's, that's in the past. He's written many of his letters in the New Testament already, and now God has something different for him. He has a new challenge, a new assignment. Their calling has remained the same, but there's another assignment to carry him for, because who knows, we never reach a level and said, all right, God, that's enough for me, but God always calls us further and further and further. There's always another assignment that God has for us. So in Acts 23, verse 11, it says this, the following night, oh, Paul's in prison, by the way, uh, as usual, no surprise there. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. 
Now, I would be afraid if I was Paul and God said, take courage, because you know that there's something I'm going to need courage for that's about to come. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Let's read that again. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. There was a new challenge, there was a new location. Paul was a Roman citizen, but as far as we know, had never preached the gospel in Rome before. So God says, you've been faithful in the little, you've been faithful where I've currently placed you, and now I'm sending you to Rome. However, what's interesting about this scripture is that it doesn't happen overnight. That most would say this starts a three-year journey of Paul even getting to Rome before he even starts to preach and to witness and to minister there. I'm going to break the following statement down in three parts as we look at three different ways that Paul guarded his great and guarded what God had placed upon his life. That a confidence in our calling brings assurance of our assignment and a tenacity in our testimony. The first one is a confidence in our calling. If there's anyone that had a confidence in their calling, we can see it in the book of Acts in the life of Paul. Acts 23 verse 12, the very next verse after God calls him to go to Rome. He needs his courage. And when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Take courage. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he is near. It's a trap. It's a setup. Now, the son of Paul's sister, his nephew, heard of the ambush. And so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. And then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So Acts 23, the beginning of it, we see God call Paul to a new journey, to a new assignment, to a new challenge. His calling has remained the same since his Damascus Road experience to preach, to plant churches. That's the call of God upon his life. We see that so often in the New Testament where Paul starts his letters by telling everyone his calling. To the Ephesians, to the Philippians, to the Corinthians, he starts off his letters by saying, I, Paul, an apostle, chosen by God, and then he continues his letter, but he knows his calling. 
and he has a confidence in what God has called him to do, which he needs because he knows that life happens and opposition happens, but who also knows that the strength is always there of God, that God's provision is always there, that even though opposition may seem to always be coming against us, that mightier than that is the hope and the trust and the confidence that we can have in our King. I love how the very next day, 40 people say, we will neither eat nor sleep. Now, I would be terrible at that because eight hours would go past. And I'd be like, I'm, I'm over this. I can't do it anymore. Too hard. Like fasting season is rough. Amen. 40 people come against him, but it, there's the opposition. But God somehow makes it work that to the enemy's 40 comes 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, and Mount Paul. Who reckons that's slight overkill? I mean, 40 Jews against a large section of the Roman army. Who knows that God's provision is more than able to give us confidence and provision and ability and to say, yes, there may be things coming against you, but I am with you, and that counts for a lot more than the enemy's opposition. And he used the people that were imprisoning him to give him his protection. I love that. Paul had such a confidence in his calling. I wonder when you think of the word calling upon your own life, what you think of. You think of what does God call me to? What is the greatness that God has placed within me? And maybe that is to to reach people of different nations or on the mission field, or maybe it's as an engineer or a doctor or a teacher or an incredible mother or an incredible father. What is the call of God that he's placed upon your life? I love the call of God that he uses because that that God gives us because they're, they're equal that we're all a priesthood of believers, as Paul writes later on in the New Testament. There's not some callings that are higher than others, but God calls all of us. And because he calls all of us equally, means that his provision and his courage and his guidance are all equally available to us. It's not as if God has this much provision for a missionary over in the hills of Africa, and then this this much left me just because I'm on the Gold Coast. But his provision goes for each and every single one of us. And it gives us a confidence in our calling. I wonder if there's a confidence in your calling here this morning. I wonder if there's a confidence where you say, I know what God's called me to do. I'm, I'm confident in it. And because I'm confident in it, it means that I can keep on going. I can pr- keep pressing forward. I won't lose my mojo, so to speak. I won't lose I won't. I won't be downcast because of, there's a confidence within me. Not an arrogance, but a confidence that I just simply know what God's called me to do. And if you're here and you're saying, I'm not sure if I do know what God's called me to do, then God can give you guidance. I love how God comes and speaks to Paul, that God still speaks to us today. Amen. His Holy Spirit can lead us and to guide us and gives us passions and dreams and desires for a reason. Not just string us along to say, I've given you this passion and desire, but there'll never be a way you can use it. But God gives us those things and he couples it with his provision to help us be the men and the women that God's called us to be. So confidence in his calling is the first way that Paul guarded his greatness. He just simply had a confidence that whatever came his way, he knew that God was always right there backing him up to the hilt. The second one is an assurance of our assignment. A confidence in our calling gives us an assurance of our assignment and a tenacity in our testimony. I wonder, have you ever done an assignment and you knew that the assignment could be done, but you had no idea how to do it? The moment I'm at Pimper Mar, there's these grade six boys who are obsessed with Rubik's Cubes. Now, I understand it is possible for a Rubik's Cube to be done with every side in the same color. 
I just have no idea how to do it. My grade six students can do it. My grade five students, there's even a grade two student who can do it. I have no idea. You'll uh, know about this if you've ever tried to put something together from Ikea. Because you see the instructions on the Ikea box on the flat pack that you've just shoved into your tiny car that was never meant to carry an entire bookcase. And you see somehow this fits together. However, I have no idea where this screw goes, what this hole is for, why it's fallen apart already before I've even put it together. Why is it flat packed? This is why my house is full of gum tree because it's already assembled. I don't need an Allen key that doesn't fit properly to do it. An assignment that we just have no idea what to do. Maybe you've been in university and you've looked at your criteria sheet and you've thought, I understand sort of the assignment, but I do not know what to write at all. And it's never getting clearer. One of the ways we can guard our greatness is having an assurance of our assignment. I was listening to a, a podcast recently. Uh, it's called How I Built This. And the guy um, who runs this show interviews people who have started famous companies. He'll interview the people who started Airbnb or Patagonia or Google or Facebook and some of the big companies and simply ask, well, how did you start or what was your idea? Incredible uh, podcast. And the next one on my list was for a guy called James Dyson who invented Dyson vacuum cleaners, which are incredible. Uh, and I found that fact out after I'd heard it. And originally, I was like, oh, vacuum cleaner. Yes, I'll listen to this on my drive somewhere because it may not be interesting. But I learned something. This guy was interviewing James Dyson and he started off with saying how he made this Dyson vacuum cleaner. He said, I was vacuuming my house one day and I just got fed up with bags because I would vacuum and the bag would fill up and I couldn't just empty the bag and reuse it. They were non-reusable bags. So I would vacuum, the bag would fill up, I would throw the bag away, then I would have to buy a new bag and then buy a new bag and I would just spend all this money on bags when I could be spending money on something better like good coffee or fishing gear or something from BCF. I was just vacuuming and spending money on bags. So he was an engineer in the 1970s, and he went to a sawmill that had a 30-foot-tall cyclone vacuum cleaner for taking up sawdust. Now, if you get your water bottle that was half empty and you spin it upside down, you'll notice that the water obviously goes to the outside and there's air in the middle. Some of the principle for how a cyclone works, the dust goes on the side. And he says, surely there's a way to get this industrial machine down to something that will fit on a vacuum cleaner so you wouldn't have to keep buying bags, and surely it will suck a lot better than what I've currently got. So he was an engineer. He quit his job. He had three kids and was married uh, at the time of this. Quit everything. Got some funding from a friend of his that had a bit of faith and hope in him and went into his garage and for the next five years tried to figure out a better way of making a vacuum cleaner. Now, he went with this idea to his workplace before he left, and they said if it could have been done already, it would have been done. Hoover or Electrolux, they're the big companies. If, it, if this could have been done, it would have been done ages ago. You're wasting your time. But he, he said in the interview, I just, I just knew there was a better way of making a vacuum cleaner. So for the next five years, he works from his garage, and after 5,127 different modifications he comes up with a Dyson. And I'm listening to this interview, 
And I'm speechless because he would make one change and then test it. Another change and test it. Another change and test it until after 5,127 different changes, it worked. He would spend one year in his garage working nine to five on a vacuum cleaner and then a second year and then a third year. I mean, if I was his neighbour, I would have questions. Kayla and I had neighbours in our first house and there was always different parcels landing at their doorstep uh, and the police were there probably once every two weeks and there were always different people living there. So I would, I would have had questions if my neighbour was working from his garage on a vacuum cleaner. Maybe I'm more cynical than you, but I would for five years. I mean, what would his wife say? Have you made it yet? No, next year. Have you made it yet? No, next year. Have you made Surely you would be asking a few questions of the guy making a vacuum cleaner in his garage. Like, just go to Harvey Norman and buy one. But he had such an assurance that there was a better way to make it. He said, did, they asked him, did you ever think of quitting? It's like, oh, well, I had three kids and we went pretty close to going bankrupt several times. Uh, but I just had an assurance and my assurance protected my greatness. My, my assurance enabled the greatness that I knew that was within me to keep on going and finally come out. And these stories always astound me because this guy in the interview didn't say he was a Christian, didn't say he was a person of faith, and he was making a vacuum cleaner. Maybe not the most spiritual thing in the earth, but he had such an assurance and such confidence in his assignment that he just kept on going. But interesting, at the end of the, art, the, the interview, they asked him, so did you ever make your uh, company public? He said, no, kept it private. It's now worth $5.2 billion. Great! Those five years worked out pretty well then. In the long run... Not when you're going bankrupt, but when you have an assurance of assignment, it always pays off. In Acts chapter 24, verse 27, Paul is still in prison. They're still trying to work out what to do with Paul. But Paul knows his assignment is to get to Rome. It says, when two years had elapsed. That's a long time. Acts 24, verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. Good name. And desiring to do the Jews a favour, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, if I was Paul, I'd think, yes, new regime coming through, things will be changing. Nope, still in prison. But had such an assurance of his assignment that he never let it go. Acts 25, verse 9 to 12. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favour, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried? on these charges before me. Jerusalem's where he's from. Jerusalem is, is comfortability. Jerusalem is a place that's known. Jerusalem is somewhere that is familiar to Paul. So here they give him an easy way out. They say, do you want to go back to your homeland? Do you want to go back to somewhere that's comfortable, where you know how things work, and there you can go through the difficult motions of being tried? They give him an easy way out. I was talking to a friend recently. He said, you know what, the enemy of great isn't bad. The enemy of great is good. The enemy of, of great is just sliding back and doing the easy option. And here, the enemy gives him a way out. He says, do you want to go back to Jerusalem? But Paul had such an assurance that God had called him to go to Rome that he chose to take the hard road. He chose to take the road less traveled by to fulfill what God had called upon his life. I wonder what your road looks like at the moment. 
in your own life with your own assignment and choosing to have an assurance of, you know what, I just know what God's called me to do. I just know that I know that I know that this thing, whatever that is for you, God's called me and God's positioned me and God's enabled me. So instead of backsliding, instead of tamming up to year four of my vacuum cleaner and throwing in the towel, saying just one more year because I know there's a better way. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, who is in Rome, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Now, that is a man who clearly has some sort of assurance because he's saying this to people who can actually kill him. Now, they're not empty words. It's not like saying, bite me to someone who uh, wouldn't actually bite me or saying something to someone who I would have no power to do that. He's saying, I don't seek to escape death. To people that have him in prison, that crucified Jesus, that have a somewhat habitual, you know, common practice of crucifying and murdering people. They're the Romans, for goodness sake. He says, I don't seek to escape death. If there's anything in their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he confirmed with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. Time and time again, the enemy tries to give him a way out, but he has such an assurance of what God's called him to do that he just keeps on pressing forward, keeps on saying, God, I need you to open this door for me. I'm going to do everything in my power to help that door be opened. In Acts 26, verse 32, there's a king called Agrippa. I, in the same time, he says, Agrippa said to Festus, this man, referring to Paul, could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But Paul knows where he's going, and he keeps on fighting for it. He was protecting his great by having an assurance of his assignment and knowing what needs to happen. It's so on the interview with the guy who uh, created Airbnb, which is now phenomenal. It started in uh, what was the GFC when they started it. And everyone said, you can't start a company in the GFC. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it. And the guy was like, well, I just knew there was a better way of doing hotels. So we decided to make this company and we started off with air mattresses and a couple of friends' houses in New York. And we maxed out something like 75 different credit cards, which I wouldn't advise you to do, in order to make the company work. And we just had such an assurance that we kept fighting for our assignment because we knew what God had for us. That's how we protect the greatness of God's place within us. The last one that Paul used was a tenacity in his testimony, a tenacity in our testimony. Tenacity can be defined as the quality of being able to grip something firmly, of being very determined and of continuing to exist, of having persistence. There's a tenacity in the life of Paul. I wonder if you know anyone that you think that is tenacious. My dad was 